Okay, this morning we are going to start studying a brand new book. Now, we were in the book of Ephesians for two and a half years. That's a long long time for those little six chapters. Uh, The book that we're going to study now is five chapters long. We'll be in it for just 19 weeks, but we will do an in-depth, careful, verse-by-verse study of it. We are going to be studying the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. Yeah, come on. 1 John. So let's open up to it now. 1 John. Not to be confused with the Gospel of John, or 2nd or 3rd John, but 1 John. And 1 John is way toward the back of your Bible. Just a little bit before the book of Revelation, after the book of Hebrews, sandwiched in there with James and Peter and those books. 1 John. What's that? It rocks. It rocks. Yeah, 1 John rocks. That's right. Homegirl. Book of 1 John. And uh, the title of this message this morning is Getting Jesus Right. We're going to look at the first four verses, Getting Jesus Right. And that's one of the main themes of the book of 1 John. We'll be exploring that over the next 19 weeks as we're studying this book. We'll talk about it quite a bit this morning. Getting Jesus Right. So let's read the first four verses and then we'll talk about it. I'll be teaching the whole book from the New American Standard. Lord willing, so, uh, and if you don't have a Bible and you're Christian, you come to church regularly, you're going to need a Bible for the study of 1 John. It'll help you to have one. I would get the New American Standard for this study. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1.1 and said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this new season now. Thank you for this moment in our church where we get to study 1 John together, along with the Ventura campus joining us. And Lord, your word is living and it's active and it's glorious and it's wonderful. It's powerful and effective. And your Holy Spirit uses it to transform our lives by changing the way that we think. And so changing the way that we feel, and so changing the way that we act, by correcting the way that we believe, by bringing us into right belief and right doctrine, by aligning our lives, Jesus, with your glory and your character and your purposes, all of this is accomplished as we give ourselves to your word and you give your word to us. So we would ask that you'd start that this morning in this book of 1 John. We ask that the next 19 weeks would be wonderful for your glory. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher of all things. We ask that you would teach us the book of 1 John. We realize that you'll use me and others to speak, but we truly ask that, Holy Spirit, you would be the teacher. And that everything that we said that we say would be faithful to your word and fruitful for your purposes and effective in our hearts, that our lives might be more in line with your glory. And Holy Spirit, Jesus said it's your job to exalt him. 
And so we're asking as we study the book of 1 John, which is about Jesus, that you would exalt Jesus in our hearts and in our minds more than ever before. Holy Spirit, that you would challenge all of our other affections with the wonder and the glory of Christ, that we would become more enamored with who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we would give ourselves to that fully. So do that, please, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, somewhat obviously, the book of 1 John was written by John. It was written by the Apostle John, along with the Gospel of John and 2nd and 3rd John, and interestingly, the book of Revelation, also written by the Apostle John. John was one of the 12 disciples. His brother was James. You remember when Jesus called James and John. It's interesting about John and his brother James that Jesus had a nickname for them, Boagines, which means sons of thunder. You'll remember that James and John were the guys in the gospel accounts who, when a community rejected Jesus, came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on these guys? Can we have a person roast because they rejected you? And so because they had this sort of attitude and they are Galileans and the most zealous Israelites came from Galilee and they were like people of the earth and they were tough guys and fishermen and farmers and throughout Israel's history when there had been rebellion against oppressors, it was always the men from Galilee that were the greatest in battle. And here's James and John, these gnarly dudes, and they're like, let's call down fire from heaven on the sinners. And Jesus is like, okay, sons of thunder. But something wonderful happened to John in his three and a half years with Jesus. He went from a son of thunder to calling himself the one whom Jesus loved. His character was radically transformed. He's the one who at the Last Supper we see reclining on the chest of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, he's this gnarly guy. Like, he's this fisherman. He's this Galilean. He's this gnarly guy. But he's been so touched by the person of Christ at the Last Supper. He's just leaning on his chest, snuggle time with Jesus. It's cool. I like it. And he called himself in the gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John, he called himself the one whom Jesus loved. He says, there I was reclining on his chest, the one whom Jesus loved. Multiple times he refers to himself, never uses his own name. He just says, the one whom Jesus loved. He was so enamored with the love of Christ that it absorbed his whole identity. Absorbed his whole identity. I'm the one that Jesus loves. Isn't that cool? And so he's known as the apostle of love. And Jesus and him had the most beautiful relationship. You'll remember that John was the only disciple that made it to the cross. All the others bailed as far as the men. There were some women there. Can I hear it from the women? Women showed up. They weren't afraid of the Romans or the Jews, but the men were fleeing. Not John. John was there. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked down at his mother and he looked at John and he said, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And one of his last acts was to connect them in this sort of adoptive relationship, showing how his love relationship was with John, that it was so deep and intimate and lovely. 
And so he comes to be known as the apostle of love, sort of in our popular mind. And this book that he wrote is known, at least I call it this, the epistle of love. Because love is mentioned more in this book than any other book in the Bible. Any other book in the Bible. 53 times we see the word love in these five short chapters. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible, but love is in it more than any other book. Let's look at a couple examples I'm sure you're familiar with, but turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Memorable things here in the book of John. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7, more on love. There's a cute little song about this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We'll learn what that means. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Man, that's, that's rich stuff. That's challenging stuff. I'm I'm so excited about what it's going to do in my own heart as we're studying this book. I'm so excited about what it's going to do for us as a church, as a community, as brothers and sisters teaching us how to more faithfully love Christ and each other, how to enjoy the love of Jesus and let that become true joy in our own lives. So John was writing this epistle to a group of churches, some churches that he was connected with in one way or another. We're not exactly sure how maybe he planted those churches or helped get them started or just had an apostolic ministry and teaching of those churches. But he wrote this letter to a group of churches who were experiencing difficulty. 
Most of his audience had previously been Jewish. They recognized Jesus as a Messiah, and they became Christians. And so, of course, when that happened, there was a real tearing away that took place. All that they had ever known was Judaism. The culture, the religion, the sacrifices, the holy days, their families were all Jewish, their communities were all Jewish, and now they recognize Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. They begin to follow after him, and there would be some separation that took place between them and their Jewish roots to a certain degree, and certainly some of their family who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and some of their friends. And now, sadly, within the church, they're experiencing another sort of separation. And that's the occasion for John writing to them. Some people in these churches had ceased to believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. That's why we have that interesting passage in John chapter 4, the first two verses, where it says, test the spirits. Not all spirits are from God. Any spirit who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. Some of the people in those churches had begun to say, no, Jesus was God, but he didn't come in the flesh. Jesus never came in the flesh. They were denying the incarnation. And so there was some real friction in the church theologically, doctrinally. And so people were leaving the church now. And this is painful because when you're in the church together, you're family. And when people leave, it always hurts. And people leave for various reasons. But they were leaving for a wrong reason, which was wrong doctrine. They had a wrong understanding about who Jesus was, his incarnation, and the nature and the work of the atonement. And so there's some real pain going on in the church right now. And John is writing to address that. He's writing to correct misunderstandings about Jesus, and he's writing to comfort those who have stayed behind in the church who are wondering, did we get it wrong? What, what is this all about? And then he's writing to encourage them and what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. Now, some of the stuff that we're going to see in the book of 1 John is some of the error that he's addressing is the early roots of something called Gnosticism. Have you guys heard of Gnosticism? How many have heard of Gnosticism? Some of you have heard of that. That's great. You guys are very educated. Gnosticism. Gnosticism wasn't really around yet when this book was written. All of John's writings were toward the end of the first century. It really blossomed in the second century, and it was a mix of paganism and Christianity and some Greek philosophies, and it became somewhat popular, but it spawned off Christian heresies, okay? It was, it was heretic. What we see John addressing in this letter are some of the roots of Gnosticism that became prevalent in the second century. Gnosticism had a few main ideas. We'll just recap a couple things. One was that matter was bad. Things of the spirit were good, things of heaven were good, but all matter was bad, and things of earth were bad. Okay, that's, that's what they believed, this kind of dualism. And so because it was bad, they started to see it as meaningless. Spiritual things matter, but the stuff of this world and the stuff of this flesh didn't really matter. In fact, maybe what is most real is a spiritual realm, and maybe this physical realm is just sort of an illusion. These were some of the thoughts that they were having. And so the goal of Gnosticism was to be released from this sort of physical prison, this bad, evil place of matter. And so they wanted to be released and go into the spiritual realm, into the heavenlies. And so obviously Christianity was somewhat appealing to them. 
but they begin to reject the specific person and work of Jesus, and they believe that esoteric knowledge, gnosis in the Greek, hence Gnosticism, an agnostic is someone who says, I don't know. A Gnostic is someone who says, I do know. They said, we have special knowledge about salvation, how to be released from evil matter into the heavenly realm. And so this sort of thought process would spawn off all different philosophies and ultimately heresies. And one of them was called docetism. How many of you have heard of that? Docetism, far less. Okay, we're going to learn a couple things today. Docetism. The word comes from the Greek word dokane, which means to seem. Okay, so this is a form of Gnosticism. We're going to see the roots of it being addressed in 1 John. Okay, docetism is this. The belief that Christ's body and humanity were not real. They only seemed real, from the Greek word to seem. What they would say is Jesus was spirit. He only seemed to be incarnate. He only seemed to be in a human body. Therefore, he only seemed to suffer on the cross, but didn't actually do so. Oh, that doesn't seem right at all, does it? That's what people were beginning to believe in these churches that John is addressing, and that's why he's writing. Now, they didn't struggle with the divinity of Christ. They believed that Christ was divine. They struggled with the humanity of Christ. So in 1 John, John is affirming and endeavoring to prove and press upon the minds of his hearers that the Messiah was human, that Jesus was the God-man, God in the flesh, as opposed to a book of like, a book of, uh, the book of Colossians, which is trying to prove the deity of Christ, the book of Hebrews, which is about the deity of Christ, John's other book, the Gospel of John, it's about the deity of Christ. All those books are saying that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. What First John is saying is that the Messiah, the Son of God, was Jesus of Nazareth. You see that? Those other books, Colossians, Hebrews, Gospel of John, affirming his deity, this book affirming his humanity. That's important because the correct doctrine of Jesus Christ is that he is the God-man. Right? Fully God and fully man. How could that be? I don't know. It's God, man. He just did it. That was a great little joke. So they believe that Christ was divine, but only seemed to become human. Because God was good. Matter was bad. Matter was evil. Flesh was bad. How could God ever take on flesh was kind of the philosophy And so they said that the body that Jesus appeared in was sort of a phantom body. Creepy, right? The implications of this are profound. If Christ did not really come in the flesh, then Christ did not really die on the cross. Then there is no atonement. Then there is no forgiveness for sins. So this was a real serious error. If you're going to deny the incarnation, then you must deny the atonement then there is no forgiveness of sins. So following that logic, some of the Gnostics in the second century begin to say, well, that's not a problem because we have no sin. We have Gnostic writings from the second century where they say, we're without sin. Abraham sinned, Moses sinned, but we have secret knowledge. We're without sin. Actual actual Gnostic writings. 
in some Gnostic writings, sin is not seen as a moral issue, but an unfortunate function that arises from the spirit realm mixing with the natural realm. You see that redefining of sin there? Right? Because there's no atonement, then sin is a problem again. Oh, actually, it's not a problem. Here's what sin is. Not a moral issue, not a moral failure. It's just the difficulties we experience of spirit in the flesh. That's what they were saying. This was real error. Now, part of, you know, we, John doesn't say explicitly in his epistle, here's what they were thinking. So we, we got to piece it together by the things that he says. Like, John chapter one, verse eight, that we'll look at next week. If, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make God a liar, right? They were saying they had no sin, some of them. So we, we piece together what they're saying. So it seems that what they had was sort of an over-realized salvation and eschatology. That is, they took the ideas of imputed righteousness, that we're in Christ, that we're sons and daughters of God, that we're seated in the heavenlies. They kind of took them to an unbiblical extreme. And they said, if those things are true, if we're already made righteous in Christ, if we're sons and daughters of God, if we're seated in the heavenlies with him, then what happens in this body doesn't matter because our salvation is already complete. So what would that lead to? If you say what happens in this body doesn't matter, what would that lead to? Sloppy living, right? Sin, sloppy living. Look, salvation is already complete. We're already seated in the heavenlies. So in this body, it's meaningless. We'll do what we want to do. Oh, okay. That's what they believed. And so what that does is nullify the doctrine of sanctification, right? You don't need to grow in sanctification. It's all already happened. You just need to endure this body till the end nullifies the doctrine of glorification, that this body will be in glory with Christ. And it nullifies the doctrine of sin. And 1 John is telling us, no, listen, Christ came in the flesh and he suffered in the flesh and he paid the penalty of sin and he broke the power of sin and he will one day remove us from the presence of sin. But right now, sin is a moral issue. And so he says in chapter two, little children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. He's saying sin is a problem. So John is writing to combat these false beliefs. So there's these two main themes then that emerge from 1 John. Two main themes, two of them. (laughs) Survey says two main themes. Okay, there we go. Thank you. He's writing to make sure they have the right view of Jesus, getting Jesus right. And then the implications of that, right Christian conduct. That's what we're going to see through the book, who Christ is and how we ought to live in light of that. Okay? Now, that's a rather robust introduction. And you might be asking, well, how is all of this relevant other than the sin issue? What about Gnosticism and docetism. Why do we even have to learn those words and what they were thinking at this time? Here's why. Because those ancient errors are prevalent in our towns today. Those same errors are prevalent. Right down the street here, one street over from our church and two blocks up is the Church of Christian Science. I have an extended family member who's a Christian scientist, has been for years. That is a modern form of Gnosticism and Docetism. Let's look at some of the facts of what they believe. Christian science, 
right here in our town. Go ahead, give me one. They say this, the spiritual Christ was infallible. Jesus as material manhood was not Christ. You see that? The spiritual was good, but Jesus in the flesh, that, that, that wasn't getting it. Jesus wasn't the God man. It's exactly what the opponents were saying 2,000 years ago. It's the same error right here. People still believe it today. Next, they say in Science and Health, page 25, the material blood of Jesus was no more efficacious to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon the cross, the accursed tree, they say, than when it was flowing in his veins as he went daily about his father's business. You see where you go. Spirit is good and matter is bad and Christ then didn't come in the flesh. Jesus was not the Messiah. Then the atonement is nothing. Then his blood meant nothing. So what they believe. So they deny that Jesus died on the cross and they say this. They say this. His disciples merely thought he did. That's docetism. He seemed to die on the cross, but it wasn't real. It wasn't efficacious. It wasn't atonement. It's 2,000 years later, the exact same error in our town today. So then, again, the logical outflow of that is a denial of true evil. So they say this in their writings. Hence, evil is but an illusion, and it has no real basis. Evil is a false belief. One of my friends that I grew up with went to Maine School right here. School right across the street. That's where I went to school when I was a kid. I was a sixth grade president, just saying. <laughs> One of... Mom, remember when we wrote that speech together? She wrote it for me, which is why I won the election. One of my friends I went to school with, one of my best friends through elementary school, junior high, and high school in the college years is a theosophist. He believes in theosophy. A lot of people in our town do. There's a family that lives one street up and one street over that believe in theosophy. I know them very well. A lot of people believe in this in our community. What theosophy is, is a pantheistic version of ancient Gnosticism. It's the same stuff that John is dealing with 2,000 years ago in our town today. Here's uh, one of their quotes from their own writings. Theosophists are great admirers of the Gnostics. They have adopted much of the terminology and vocabulary of ancient Gnosticism, which looked with disdain upon the material properties of both the world and man. So that, Here's a logical outflow. Theosophy declares that all men are innately divine so that in time all men become Christ's. It's that same old faulty logic leading to a new faulty conclusion. Jesus wasn't the Christ, the Messiah. We all actually become Christ's. What about the New Age movement? Listen, the place where we live is absolutely saturated with the New Age movement. It's inseparable from our popular culture. A lot of our local festivities and parades and parties are all expressions of the New Age movement. You can't escape it in this area. This area is one of the hotbeds in the world for the New Age movement. You know that the New Age, though it's very broad with lots of beliefs, but generally denies that Christ was a man. It denies the incarnation. It denies the dual nature of Christ, fully God and fully man. So here's from some of their own writings. The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ says, 
Christ is not man. That's the error that's being addressed in 1 John. Christ is not man. The Christ is universal love. Uh Uh-oh, boy, that went sideways quickly. From denying the incarnation to totally redefining the Messiah to redefining love. John is writing to define the Messiah, the incarnation, and true love. I don't think there's a more relevant relevant book in the scriptures. This Jesus is but man who has been fitted by temptations, overcome by trials multiform, to be the temple through which Christ can manifest to men. Look to the Christ within who shall be formed in every one of you. Man, that's just, that's just, that's off the mark, bro. Just missing it there. But so many people in our community hold these kind of ideas about Jesus. This is why this book is important for us. This is exactly what 1 John is dealing with, the correct view of Christ and the correct view of love. Look at what 1 John 2.22 says. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. That's an ancient lie, denying the incarnation. This is the Antichrist, not the Antichrist with a capital A, as in Daniel or the book of Revelation, but the spirit of Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So because they deny that Christ came in the flesh, again, as we've seen with all of these beliefs, the logical outflow then is the flesh doesn't matter and sin doesn't matter. So for New Agers, almost anything is permissible because sin and evil are not real. They're only illusions. Evil is basically the manifestation of a force that is out of place or out of timing, inappropriate to the needs and realities of the situation. How's that redefining of sin? Sin just doesn't fit for the occasion. That's all it is. It's not real evil. See how important this book is today? I'm trying to sell it. Have I sold it? Okay. First John matters today. Now let's look again at those first four verses. I think we have them on keynote here. Okay, we're going to kind of break these down. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He starts off by saying, what was from the beginning? Have you ever noticed that there's three beginnings, so to speak, in in, uh, the Bible? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. That one deals with creation, right? That's the moment of creation. In the beginning, God created all things. And then we get to the gospel of John, and there's another beginning. In the beginning was the word. Right? So that's talking about the pre-existence of Jesus, the Messiah. So we have in the beginning creation. We have in John in the beginning the pre-existence of Jesus, the Messiah. And now we have in 1 John another in the beginning. And this in the beginning is the incarnation. And so the gospel. That's what John is dealing with. In the beginning, when Christ came in the flesh and announce the good news of the gospel of the kingdom and the work of the cross. That's what he is referring to when he says, in the beginning. What was from the beginning? And then he says this about it. What we have heard, what we have seen, 
seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. He starts right out of the gate saying, Jesus came in the flesh. It wasn't an illusion. He didn't seem to be in the flesh. It wasn't a phantom body. He's saying, I was there. I heard him. I saw him. I looked at him. I touched him. It was a sensory experience. It was an illusion. He says, I saw him with my own eyes. There's three Greek words to see. First one is blepo. It means just to see, like I see you right now. No big deal. I just see you. The other one is orao, which he uses there, right? To see. It means more than to just physically like see it. It means to perceive it. He said, look, I'm not mistaken about Jesus. I, I, I perceive. It means, it means to, to really look upon. And then he uses another word after that, theaomai, where he says, we have looked at or beheld. The idea is to willingly, deeply gaze upon. He says, look, I didn't just see Jesus. I perceived. I studied. I walked with, I talked with, I ministered with, and I gazed upon. I rested on his very bosom the night before he was crucified. This Jesus was the Messiah who came in the flesh. And so he says, this one that I've touched, that I've handled, that I've seen, that I've heard, he is the word of life. So now the next phrase in that verse, he starts talking about concerning the word of life. Turn to John chapter one if you want to, or we'll just put it on the screen for you, but John chapter one. Here he picks up again on this idea of the word. Here's the verse. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word for word there is logos. You guys know this. You've heard this. There's lots of different words, a few different words in the Greek language for word. How confusing is that? But this particular one, logos, doesn't refer to mere speech or a part of speech, but it's a concept, the idea behind it, okay? He calls Jesus the logos. In 1 John, the word of life. The logos of the Zoe, the word of life. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. He was with God. He was God. He was there in the beginning. The Logos. Here's why he uses that phrase, the Logos, the Word, the concept. Because ancient Greek philosophers used to think a lot about God. And when they thought about God, Creator God, in His greatness, they began to think this thought. God is so great that there must be some sort of a bridge between us and God. There must be some sort of mediator. There's got to be some sort of middleman between us and God because God is too great and we're not. There's got to be some, some middleman in between. And Greek philosophers started to refer to that as the logos because it was just a concept someone or something from God that could possibly bridge the gap. And so John, in writing the gospel of John to Greek culture, says, let me tell you about the Logos. He was there in the beginning. He's the uncreated one. He was always with God, and he actually was God. 
He tells them that this logos that they perceived must exist but didn't know was actually Jesus. The expression of an infinite God in finite terms, in human flesh, in a way that we could understand. The concept of God unfolding, God communicating himself to humanity, not merely with words, but with the expression of Jesus himself in the flesh. And that is the full revelation of God. Look at Hebrews chapter one. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, right? God has spoken many ways throughout history, prophets, writings, creation. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the final full revelation of God. God in the flesh. So that Jesus said, you want to know the father? Look at me. If you've seen me, then you've seen the father. Because I am the expression of God in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, speaking of Jesus, he has explained him. He's the word of God. He's explained him. But not merely with parts of speech, Right? But the full concept revealed in the flesh, that word explained there in John 1.18 is where we get our word exegesis. Exomai in the Greek. It means to lead out, to reveal, to make clear, to show forth. Jesus has shown forth to the world once and for all what God is like and what God does. He's a final full expression, the exact representation of the glory of God infinite glory of God in finite terms it could become comprehended you see how from God's point of view the incarnation is so important because God loves us and when you love you want to reveal self right you ever been with your spouse and they're holding something back from you and you're like don't don't hold it back from me you're dating someone and for the first time they seem closed off and you're like, why are you closed off to me? There's, there's this love thing here. Love wants to reveal self. God loves you. And so he wants to reveal himself to you. And so he didn't merely give us the words of the prophets. He gave us Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. It's a love thing. In the beginning was the Word. He existed before all things. Jesus is uncreated. He's eternal. What is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus has always been. And then our verse in John says, if you're looking at it there in John, the Word was with God. With coming from a preposition that means literally facing. It's speaking of the eternal fellowship of the Son and the Father. Which was never broken until one dark, mysterious moment when this same Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And the earth went dark. The veil was torn. The rocks split in half. The only time in all, all of unrecorded and recorded history when that fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken for just a moment, when God turned his face away because my sin was placed upon the shoulders of that man, that mediator, that bridge, the God-man, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The right understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is fully God, and the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. Right? It's a doctrine of the Trinity, man. Trip out on it. It's crazy. (laughs) The Word was God. Jesus possesses the same deity, the same essence as the Father. So we might take that verse from John 1, 1 and rewrite it to look like this. In the beginning was the Word, the total concept of God, and the Word was in constant fellowship with God the Father, and the Word was, as to his essence or nature, God himself. So when John is writing to these churches in the midst of this misunderstanding, he is saying, listen, I heard the timber of the voice of God himself. I can remember what his skin felt like. I handled them. I knew what it was to gaze into his eyes. I, I could tell you what color the Messiah's eyes were. This was no illusion. I was a son of thunder, wanted to call down hellfire. Now I'm the one whom this Jesus loves. I've seen him. That's what he's saying to those churches. He's not just the word. He's the word of life. This third and fourth verse there in the gospel of John, all things came into being through him. That is Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus constantly claimed to be the giver of life, right? He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. He said to a grieving sister whose brother had died, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And we're told in John chapter 5, we'll go to John 10 actually. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then John 5, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son to have life in himself. Jesus is the word of life, the very expression of God, the full revelation, the exact representation of God in the flesh who has in himself, life and new life. The devil came to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that you might have life abundantly. And then John 1.14 says about this word of life, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we 
saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. So back in 1 John, his point is this, that this one that is in dispute, whose identity they're fighting about, breaking up over, this one is the pre-existent Lagos, the very God himself who holds all of life in his hands, who holds all things together by the power of his word. And he actually, because of the love of God, became flesh, dwelt among us, and in him is salvation alone. So he says that in verse 2 of 1 John. And the life was manifested And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. You'll notice that John loves to repeat himself. It's the way that he presses a point upon us. All throughout the book of 1 John, he'll be repeating himself. Don't worry about that. It's a glorious thing to have the word of God repeated to you over and over. His buddy Peter said, I'm gonna stir you up by way of reminder. John repeats himself for emphasis. What we have seen and heard. Second time, he says, we proclaim to you also. Now, here's the goal. So that you may have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and his Son. That you might have fellowship with us. He's addressing the fact that many in these churches have broken fellowship, right? They left. Again, people leave churches for all sorts of reasons. It's always painful. It's always difficult but they left for wrong doctrine. And so now the ones who are left behind, they're saying, what? we had this incredible fellowship, man. We are all serving Jesus and in love with Jesus and we had community together. And now they're just gone. And so they're starting to wonder, what, what's the deal? And Paul says, uh, excuse me, John says, I'm writing to you so that you might know you have fellowship with us. The basis for our fellowship is the right understanding of Jesus Christ. Now, may I say this to us, brothers and sisters? The basis of our fellowship is the correct view of the person in the work of Jesus Christ. The basis of our fellowship, right? We're different colors, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic status. There's all sorts of differences. But the basis of our fellowship, what we have in common, our koinonia, our common connection, is the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, who died for us and rose from the dead and gave us new life. Therefore, what binds us together is greater than anything that could threaten to tear us apart. You understand that? The basis of our fellowship is who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so he's affirming to them as the apostle of those churches, I want you to know that we have fellowship and the right understanding of Christ. We have this in common. And then he says something so profound. He says, in our fellowship, the fellowship that you're invited into is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship comes from the Greek word, as you know, koinonia, which means to have in common with. He says, we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. What do we have in common with the Father and the Son? We understand that we together as believers, as a church universal, have fellowship because we're connected by the Son, Jesus Christ, but we also have fellowship with the Father and the Son. What is our connection with God? What do we have in common with them? Well, 
one of the ways that we talk about having fellowship is by shared nature, right? Surfers have a certain fellowship because we share this thing that's so profound. We could call it nature, man, right? We talk about the the fellowship of humanity because we all share flesh and blood, right? We have the same nature, the fellowship of humanity. We could talk about artists who have a fellowship because they have the same shared deep thing. But then think about when someone's so different, like an artist and a bulldozer driver, which is more like what I would be, a bulldozer driver. Think there's no, there's no fellowship on that basis because, man, they're really divergent, right? Like one guy's just like, and the other guy's like, oh, oh, oh. Right? No real fellowship. That was so stupid. <laughs> but so fun for some reason. No real fellowship between an artist and a bulldozer on that level. But then you get artists together. You get surfers together. You get bulldozer drivers together. There's some real deep connection. You get humanity together. There's some real deep connection. But remember what the Greek philosophers were thinking? We're so far off from this God. There's got to be some logos in between. For sake of fellowship is why Christ took on flesh. Look at Hebrews. Look at it. (laughs) Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, since we are flesh and blood, Christ himself also partook of the same, became flesh and blood, that there might be even some fellowship in shared nature. Now, Not only did he become flesh and blood, but we then, he shared in our nature, we now through salvation share in his nature. Second Peter. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Christ took on flesh, but through salvation by faith, we become partakers of the divine nature. Whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds new agey, man. It doesn't mean that we become divine. It does not mean that we become Christ's. It doesn't mean that our human essence is changed into deity. What it's speaking of is the fact that through faith, Christ is in us and we are in Christ. That we've become identified with Christ. That we are born again, born of God. That we are new creations born of the spirit, not merely born of flesh, that we become sons and daughters of God, the bride of Christ, co-heirs with Christ, remade in his image. In fact, we are called the body of Christ. Christ took on a human body that we might have fellowship through the atonement. We become his body through salvation. We share in his divine nature, not that we become divine, but that we've been invited into the life of God in Christ. What this means is that we have true fellowship with God, a deeper connection than artist to artist, surfer to surfer. 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he said of Jesus. We are his beloved sons and daughters with whom through Christ he is well pleased. What this means is we can truly enjoy the presence and the love of God. He took on flesh and died on the cross that we might participate in his divine life, a true commonality. Hebrews says this, for we don't have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. He took on human flesh. He endured temptation, pain, sleepiness, suffering, all those things in the flesh, yet is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have a high priest who understands he took on flesh and we then take on his image. Romans 8.29 says that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. And so Ephesians says this, put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and the truth, our identity with Christ. So then in the rest of the book, he'll begin to unfold what the shape of discipleship is, what it looks like to live that out. But he says there in verse four, I'm writing this to you so that our joy may be made complete. Because everything else in this world will eventually fail. It will eventually give out. It will eventually let us down. Only Jesus has existed for all of eternity, brought the love of God to us in terms that we could understand, and has made us his own so that we have true joy in him, that the Holy Spirit would make that real for us. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for these glorious truths again. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would make Jesus and the fellowship that we have with him more and more real. Thank you for the victory of the cross. Thank you that our Redeemer lives. And so he's present. So we ask that, Spirit, you would manifest the sweetness of Christ in this place. We, we want our own lives to be changed from sons and daughters of thunder to those whom Jesus loves. Holy Spirit, help us to take on that identity. Who am I? I'm, I'm the one who Jesus loves. Help us, Holy Spirit, to experience and enjoy the love of God, that we'd be so transformed by it, we'd be just like John saying, I've seen, I've perceived, I've beheld, I've touched, I've heard the word of life. And so I live differently. Help us to get Jesus right in our own doctrinal thinking and help us to take the right Jesus into our community. Help us to be bold to correct error where it is. Jesus, you're worth fighting for. You're worth talking about. You're worth clarifying and making clear. Help us to be faithful with that in our towns. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.